Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, two have been arrested in Kingston in raids related to a major national security probe. What's with the delay in the proposed meeting between the city of Hamilton and Doug Ford over LRT? Also, do bigger class sizes help or hurt our students? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Top story that we wanted to get into today, uh, police have made arrests in Kingston, Ontario, related to what they say is a major national security probe. They say it's been going on for the last couple of weeks now. And, uh, well, it's rather bizarre because apparently people up in the Kingston area thought something was going on, but they didn't really know what. And I'm not so sure they do now. Joining us to talk about uh, what could be happening is Phil Gursky. Uh, Phil, of course, is the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Phil, good to have you with us today. Thanks on a busy day taking some time for us. My pleasure, Bill. From what you've heard in the news reports now, what is going on up there? Because uh, we've heard reports about some strange airplane that was flying around the Kingston area and uh, people were complaining and uh, the authorities weren't giving them any information on this and now arrests are being made. One of them is a minor. Yeah, you know, when I, when I saw this story break last night, Bill, I, this, this really threw me for a loop for a couple of reasons. One is the lack of information. I understand the RCMP will be giving a news conference at some point this morning to explain it. Um, second part, Kingston, which is not a place you normally associate with a national security investigation. Yeah. And the third thing, there was this plane flying around that you mentioned, and I can't for the life of me remember a single case that, that I was familiar with in my, in my time at CSIS where aircraft were involved. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. The RCMP does have aircraft. They use for a variety of reasons. But I've never seen one in conjunction with a national security file. And they're suggesting it's 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 an anti-terrorism operation. And that even strikes me as, as even a bit more bizarre. And I have a lot more questions than I have answers at this point, Bill. I know. And, and of course, in the absence of information comes speculation. And I, I guess that's really what we're doing here, Phil. But, but it, it just seems odd, as you say, uh, that uh, the, the little bit of information we do have so far, they've used that term, national security risk, but at the same time they say, well, the risk uh, level is not going to rise. So it was, was this a threat or wasn't it? Well, you know, the fact, you know, when, you, when you talk national security, I mean, if you look at what CSIS and the RCMP do, national security covers a number of areas. It can cover espionage, uh, it can cover foreign interference in Canada, and it can cover things like terrorism. The fact that they talk about the threat level, which is something that the, the government establishes periodically to tell Canadians, you know, what is the risk of terrorism in, in, in our land, suggests to me that uh, of those three I mentioned, espionage, foreign interference, and terrorism, this is terrorism, because you wouldn't, you wouldn't talk about the threat level if it was an espionage case or a foreign interference case. So, yeah, it, there was some kind of investigation that went on. I have no idea if my former colleagues at CSIS were involved. It's possible, but it seems to be something that, They've been on to for a while and have elected to make arrests. And again, the, the role of the aircraft, um, what they were looking for, why they were deploying it, that's a really great question at this point. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, you know, they obviously knew the address. They knew the location uh, where these people were living. Uh, you know, knock on the door. I mean, why Why the air thing? I, I'm wondering, uh, the same as you, what are they looking for here? What role, if, uh, obviously, did play some kind of a role. And they've been doing this apparently for a few weeks now. This plane's been flying around. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was talking to somebody about this earlier, and I mean, do they have some kind of special equipment on the aircraft that could detect certain substances, you know, like some kind of an infrared signature or something? I don't know. I don't know what these aircraft have, have loaded on board, but it just seemed odd you would use air, you know, aerial surveillance in a case where you could just easily have done, you know, physical surveillance or, or got a warrant or whatever. So, yeah, it's just, it just, it's so strange from many perspectives. And the other thing which is interesting, of course, is that 
Um, one of the two arrested is a minor. Now, that's not the first time this has happened. Uh, way back in, in 2006, we had the Toronto 18, and five of those were under the age of 18. They were, they, were, they were minors. But it's not that common in Canada to have minors arrested on what looks to be a terrorism investigation. So, yeah, I'd be interested to see um, who the people are and what actual plot, because this was apparently a plot somewhere, assumingly in Kingston, what they were planning on doing. Yeah, that, that's because, and again, there's the media conferences. Hopefully, is going to answer some of these questions. But uh, just back to the aircraft for just a second here, Phil. I mean, with your experience in this, if this thing is flying around and it was a news story in Kingston, where what's that plane? I mean, a lot of people were asking. They were calling radio stations, asking newspapers. Uh, uh, doesn't that send up a red flag to the bad guys too? I mean, they they must think <laughs> maybe they're looking at us. I mean, I know if it, even if there's not a sense of paranoia there, they got to think we're doing something wrong here. And now all of a sudden, there's an airplane up in the sky. Do you think they didn't put two and two together? You'd think so, right? But um, in my experience, Bill, um, bad guys can be pretty stupid sometimes. And maybe they didn't. <laughs> so this is not together. like the movies. These are not master criminals. No, not 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 from what I've seen. But no, you would think that if if people were talking about this aircraft, like normal, you know, residents of Kingston noticed this plane flying around. It'd been quite the topic of conversation for quite some time. You'd think that at some point the bad guys, and they're only alleged bad guys at this point, yeah. would have taken notice as well. So. Yeah, you kind of wonder about that. But sometimes, you know, you do things in an overt fashion because you kind of want to, you want to let the bad guys know you're on to them because um, that, can, that can change their behavior and get them to stand out at the same time. Where did the information come from, do you think? And again, I'm, I'm sure we'll get some speculation, but you and I have talked in the past about Canada being a member of the Five Eyes. Uh, and there have been incidences here uh, where we have, well, I was going to say we've uncovered, actually somebody else has uncovered uh, some, some nefarious activity and gone, and they've passed it on to authorities here. The uh, one a couple of years ago in the London area where the uh, the guy was actually making bombs, they just caught him on his way into it, grab a cab to go to the mosque in London, remember that story. But we apparently got that from, from Australian and, and UK authorities, not from Canadian authorities. Uh, and it's going to be interesting because you and I have talked in the past about, well, really about staffing and whether or not we've got enough eyes in, of our own here to look after some of this stuff. Yeah, those are great points, Bill. And and, and I think what this points to is, um, it's funny, you mentioned the Strathroy case, which was, a, you know, the FBI tipped off the RCMP. And people saw that as an incredible intelligence failure from a Canadian perspective. And I argued it's actually incredible intelligence success because you have an ally like the Americans, I know we talk a lot about the U.S. today, and you know things aren't going that well between the two countries for reasons we won't get into. But I think what it shows is once again we have a very robust, excellent professional relationship with the FBI. They have no qualms in sharing intelligence with with CSIS and the RCMP in, in files where either we can help or there's files that involve Canada. And so again, it's hard to know with all the you no know, details um, being let out so far, but. My guess is the FBI was in constant contact with the Mounties and said, hey, we've learned this. Let's work together to neutralize this plot. So I, I think this is a very good story um, in the sense that arrests were made. Nothing has happened. No one got hurt. No one got killed. Nothing, nothing went boom. So to me, this, again, is a, an illustration of, of how good the relationship actually works between the two countries. Well, as you say, especially given the political climate down there, it's quite possible the FBI people that were doing the monitoring here were not being paid. So they're doing this because of dedication to their job. Uh, and, and that's to be commended as well. How do you how do you organize a, a response to this, though, when you get this information? Uh, obviously, they watched this place for a while, and, and you know, I'm sure they've got a, a log as to what was going on, who was going in and out, etc. But uh, why pull the plug today, or yesterday, as it turned out? Well, and hopefully we're going to find that out, Bill. My guess is that something has happened. And, and I'll give you um, 
an example of something that I worked on when I was at Thesis uh, a couple of years ago. And it was a case where we learned that, well, we in the Mounties learned that um, somebody was planning on traveling. And at that point, we thought, okay, we can't wait for this any longer. We can't let this person leave the country because we knew what they were possibly going to be up to. And that's when the arrests were made. So I think sometimes what happens is that you learn of something through your surveillance or, you know, they probably they may have had um, intercepted, uh, you know, warranted intercepts, telephone and all that kind of stuff. And something came up and it said, okay, uh, this changes the landscape. Um, it's now become a little more dangerous than it, you know, this is a bit of a watching brief, but now it's become a little more dangerous. And in view of public safety and making sure nothing goes goes wrong, we're going to pounce now. So I'm guessing that's exactly what happened in this case, is that they learned of something which basically sped up their decision to move it from just surveillance to, to actually taking action. You know, when you look at this, and you mentioned we talked about the Strathroy example a couple of minutes ago, and then there's the Toronto 18 from a few years ago now. Uh, we it's trying to find a balance, I guess. This is kind of a reminder, Phil. I mean, well, I, we don't want to get to the point where we think there's a terrorist behind every tree, yet we shouldn't be naive enough to think nothing goes on here. No, and it, exactly. You, you make a very good point. And, you know, like, who would have thought Kingston, right? I mean, when you think, if you're going to think terrorism, you're going to think the major centers, you know, um, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, maybe Ottawa, maybe Calgary, but you're not going to think Kingston, even though, you know, RMC is there, Queens is there, and there's all kinds of military bases there as well. But I think what this shows is that it can happen anywhere. It doesn't normally happen. And in fact, there's a very rare occurrence in this country, and then the, the data shows that. But, you know, we had a guy up in Timmins, Ontario, who became a spokesperson, spokesperson for Islamic State. We had a guy from Kempsville, Ontario, south of Ottawa, a small farming town, became a spokesperson for Islamic State. So it, 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 I think it reiterates and supports the notion that terrorism is not limited to the major urban centers. Uh, it can happen anywhere, and this case might be a good example of that. Well, there you go with the Internet once again. I mean, and you go back to the Strathroy example. That was a singular guy, uh, but at the same time, I mean, through the Internet and websites, you can be attached to anybody you want, get the information you want to do pretty much anything. But this this sounds, and again, you know, we're speculating, this sounds a little more intricate than that. If there have been at least a couple of arrests, you got to wonder if there's something, uh, well, the, exactly what these guys had planned or what they were planning on doing and why the air surveillance. So there's so many questions here. It's it's a rather bizarre story. It, it really is. I'm, I'm hoping the RCMP is going to give us a bit more information. My understanding is they're, they're going to go live at, at 10 a.m. this morning. Uh, I'm hoping that we learn a bit more. And, you know, obviously, don't give away the don't go give away the store because you have to still make a case in court. But I think Canadians want to know. Okay, you know, what kind of investigation was this? Um, why did you choose to act now? And how serious was this? The fact that they've arrested and made. Uh, in in the wake of uh, this this bizarre surveillance scheme with the airplanes, I think Canadians have a right to, to at least some information that uh, what exactly was up and and why did you choose to act and uh, and then hopefully they're going to be forthcoming with that in, in you know half an hour or so. Well, again, as you mentioned, because of the sharing of information with the Five Eyes uh, and other uh, security agencies and uh, that sort of activity, uh, we run the possibility too that this could be something to do with a, ch- a plot that was actually being targeted someplace else. I mean, you think of the case of the what we call the Ancaster hacker here from a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that was again U.S. intelligence that brought that to us, and it was actually you know they wanted him down there to to face a trial. He's he's in in jail right now, but it was Canadian authorities that executed that. Yeah, exactly. And you know, the thing is with with the ability of people to connect online. You know, you can be talking to somebody in Afghanistan or Southeast Asia or wherever in real time, and people share information, they share ideas, they share inspirations, and sometimes they share attack planning online. So, again, it's really hard to say exactly how, what the American angle was on this. It could have been something 
simple as, you know, the, he was maybe, these people were in touch with somebody in the States that the FBI had on their radar, and that's why they passed it on to the RCMP. But uh, again, I, I think this just goes to show that it's complicated. Terrorism is a complicated phenomenon. It doesn't uh, just happen, you know, in the places you think it's going to happen. And, and thank God we have the authorities like Zexes and the RCMP and their international partners who are on top of it, and they take action when they have to to stop uh, people being hurt. Yeah, two arrests we've made, but the two different addresses. Now, I, I don't know Kingston that well. I mean, one is on Kingsdale Avenue in Kingston. The other uh, is on McDonnell, uh, and I don't know if those are, are nearby each other, but it, it shows that there seems to be something going on. It's not it's just a, one individual in one particular household, so that some kind of teamwork, I guess, was involved in this. Yeah, I, I guess, would you call it a cell if only two people are involved? It's uh, a bit of a stretch of the term, but it's clearly there's a, more than one individual involved who've been, you know, they've been uh, arrested and alleged to have, who have done this. It's important to point out they haven't been found guilty yet, but I think what it does point to is that, yeah, it's a bit larger than just one person. And, um, you know, again, how close were they? Were they friends? Were they relatives? Did they go to school together? Who knows? These are all questions we have to answer, but clearly it points to the fact that, uh, and on were on to this, and as I said, thank God that they um, did a job they did, and, and then made the arrest when they did. When they say that the public has no reason to be concerned about this, uh, can we assume from that, Phil, that they got everybody who they thought is involved in this? I think so. You know, the threat level, as I mentioned, is, is established by, by Public Safety Canada in, in conjunction with what the RCMP and CISA share with them, and you only budge that, that meter when you absolutely have to. You don't want to spread panic. And so this indicates that whatever they were planning, whatever, however large or small scale it was, they wrapped it up, and there's no need to um, make Canadians afraid that more is going on out there, to the best of our knowledge. Yeah, and, and the level is considered to be medium right now, but, uh, you know, before anybody gets too worried about that, it's been that way since, what, 2014, I guess? Uh, absolutely, since the attack on Parliament Hill. Yeah. So you would think that, you know, an event like that, would lead authorities to say, oh, my God, you know, we're really in trouble. But, no, it hasn't budged since that time, which, again, to me, is a really important message for Canadians that, you know, terrorism is not an existential threat to Canada. We do have problems. We do have individuals who want to carry out attacks here or go abroad to, to join terrorist groups. But in the long run, we're, you know, we're not Afghanistan. We're not Somalia. We're not Nigeria. Uh, let's take a deep breath and uh, just remind ourselves of that because, if you give in to this, this, this fear and panic, then you start making bad decisions. And I don't think we want to do that as Canadians. Well, like uh, you, we'll be watching uh, later on this morning and see if hopefully we can get some of these questions answered. Phil, as always, thanks so much for spending some time with us and trying to shed some light on this. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. That's Phil Gursky, of course, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting and former CSIS member himself. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. What's going on with the LRT project? Uh, it, we were told that 2019 was going to be a pivotal year. There's going to be some discussion. We get some some clarity about operational costs, and uh, they're actually going to maybe not, not do some digging yet, but uh, award contracts, etc. Well, none of that's going to happen until Pre- Premier Ford meets with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. That was supposed to happen around Christmas time. It still hasn't happened. Uh, I guess there have been a few inquiries made about that from City Hall to Queen's Park, and there's still no clarity on this. Joining us to talk about the uh, the problem that seems to be brewing here, John Best, of course, the publisher of the Bay Observer, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Hey, John, how are you doing today? Just great, Bill. Nice what, to be what, with you. Whatever side you're on on this issue here, uh, some are for it and still again, it, and that's not going to change anybody's mind. Uh, but, you know, when the a government makes a commitment to this, I mean, this is really what the city is basing this thing on, I, I, I'm 
concerned, and, and I know a lot of other people, whether they're for it or against it, John, seem to be concerned about what I think is, is really some heel-dragging on the part of the province, not just because Ford hasn't met with Eisenberger right now, but it just seems as if these guys are not really uh, hot on this project. Well, I think you're absolutely right, um, uh, particularly now that we, we have a new government. I, I don't think Doug Ford, when he goes to bed at night, uh, is thinking about Hamilton LRT. Um, it's it's down at the bottom of the list of uh, approved uh, major transit projects uh, in the GTA H already, and um, I know it's you know it's a burning issue here, but uh, not so much at Queens Park, I don't think. Well, and therein lies the problem. And and I guess that you could make a pretty strong argument right now that although he's supposed to be the premier for the whole province, uh, a lot of Toronto-centric uh, policies are being developed over the last little while. I mean, he still seems to be focused on the GTA. Well, uh, I mean, the GTA is where all the people are, and it's it's where the bulk of the congestion is and where the strongest case can be made uh, for higher-order transit. I mean, uh, you know, at the end of the day, transit's about moving people, uh, it's not about creating a real estate boom. Uh, and, um, you know, the needs uh, in and around Toronto are demonstrably far greater than ours when it comes to transit. Well, and, and if there's any familiarity, uh, you know, between transit problems and transit solutions and, and Doug Ford, you'd think it'd probably be on Toronto. I mean, he did spend some time as a Toronto City Councillor, albeit I think he had the worst attendance record of any of the councillors, but uh, even if you read some of the reports, maybe not so familiar here uh, with the Hamilton situation. But it, uh, there's, the more people I talk to, and I, you know, on both sides of this issue, John, there seems to be... Uh, I think a growing concern here that uh, I, he's saying all the right things when and if he ever speaks about LRT in Hamilton, but they're not doing a whole lot about it. I mean, they did freeze uh, real estate holdings, uh, land uh, transfers that were supposed to be happening here. Uh, right. Nothing's going to happen here until he finally decides to pay attention to this file. Well, it's not just that. Uh, the other thing that's happening, I, I've been in communication with Metrolinx uh, off and on for the last couple of months. Um, they shortlisted three consortiums to, to build and operate the uh, LRT here. They did that last April. We're now approaching the end of uh, January, which is so it's nine months. And as of a couple of weeks ago, Metrolinx told me that not one of the three consortia have submitted a bid yet. And, and I think the reason for that is because it's a design-build-finance uh, type of operation, the idea being that the finance piece will be paid back over a 30-year period out of operating revenues. So if you do the math, and I, I don't want to bore you with math, but if you're going to pay off a billion dollars over 30 years, you, you've got to generate $33 million roughly in, uh, in operating revenue. Um, and, you, and then you got, depending on whose numbers you look at, Metrolinx has suggested the operating cost of of this uh, facility will be about $12 million. So there's, there's $45 million that needs to be generated annually on, on a bunch of lines that currently are generating about $10 million. So there, there's going to have to be a hell of an increase in ridership uh, for this thing to make sense. And 
I believe that's part of the reason uh, we haven't seen any bids yet. Well, and and therein lies the problem. And and even though the the, the premier may not be paying a whole lot of attention, or at least not saying much about this situation, you you got to know that uh, that the the pencil pushers at Queens Park and the bureaucracy there are, are crunching the numbers that you've just talked about here. And and I guess you know in the absence of information again comes speculation. But you got to wonder if somebody's you know it's just mentioned to the premier's office. Uh, I don't think this is a very good deal for us, meaning for the province. Well, uh, and I think that's the reason why uh, uh, Ford, and, and even for that matter, Patrick Brown, um, his predecessor, both uh, opened up the idea that they might be willing to uh, allow the money to be spent on other infrastructure. And, and you know, that's pretty interesting because we just went through a, uh, a capital budget exercise. They approved uh, uh, a roughly $76 million on roads, bridges, traffic, and sidewalks. And um, I think staff have uh, told the city repeatedly that the, just to keep things in a, in a decent state of repair, we probably need more than double that uh, on an annual basis. So on the one hand, we're looking around for scarce capital dollars. On the other hand, we're still talking about spending a billion dollars on a route that is actually quite well served by existing transit. Now, but, you know, you know where I'm coming from on this. Well, but, sure, sure. Uh, but frankly, that, that's, I think, the issue in front of both council and the province. But it, we're, we seem to be almost in a stalemate here, though, John, and, and I, I think that's what's frustrating everybody, whichever side of this issue that you're on right now. It, it's as if, the, you know, the province and the city are kind of staring at each other, so you go first. No, you go first. And, and nobody's doing anything. That, and, and that was the case even in the previous government. I mean, how long did it take before they finally got um, Kathleen Wynne to, uh, to actually agree to the funding of, of a billion dollars? Um, you know, we were spending a lot of time voting on a project that, that we didn't know whether it was funded or not. And, and I think part of the problem, frankly, is just straight political. Uh, um, you know, there's all this talk about meetings, and, and I have no idea why the meeting that was supposed to happen before Christmas hasn't happened, but uh, there's still a you know a, a pretty strong indication that that the mayor's office is trying to work around the only local member, um, Donna Skelly. Uh, she has not been asked. Uh, she has not been asked to set up a meeting. Uh, now, normally, uh, you know, if you if you're at if you're the premier scheduler uh, regarding meetings, 99 percent of those requests for meetings with mayors. Uh, are are carried forward by the local MPPs. Yeah. And here we got a situation where the calls are coming direct. Uh, uh, they're not working with the local MPP, although I I do understand that they are now trying to schedule uh, a meeting. Uh, but you know you can't uh, if you're in the premier's office and you don't see a local MPP attached to a request for a meeting, um, you probably say I'm not sure this is a good idea. And, and, you know, I mean, Ford has met with other mayors uh, uh, over the last few months and, and even met with Hazel McCallion, who hasn't been a mayor for four years, uh, and gave her, offered her a job. So, you know, it's, you, you have to play the game. And, um, you know, in the previous government, the game was working through the local member of, of uh, the legislature. And that's not happening to any great degree now. Well, maybe Mayor Eisenberger should call Hazel and see if he can, you know, hey, can you put in a good word for me? That may, well, that may be the conduit. But your point's well taken. And and I'm wondering if, if the reason why there seemed to be some reticence to go through the, the local MPP in this situation was because Donna Skelly has been quite open about her 
you know, let's face it, her her ambivalence toward this whole project, as a matter of fact, her opposition to it, really. And uh, I, but but that's not what I think what the city's asking for at this stage. They're not asking for her to change her mind. They're not even asking to write the check right now. They're just saying, can we get together with the premier? That's right. And uh, and and uh, I, I actually had a chance to talk to Skelly um, uh, today. And uh, for instance, uh, the the article that were that were that triggered this conversation, uh, Andrew Dreschel's column, where he's talking about a a possible delegation of either I'm not sure whether it's political people or or whether it would be more uh, staff from Queens Park coming down here to tour the the project, uh, the proposed route, and. Uh, Skelly uh, knows nothing about that and has not been invited to be part of that. So again, um, I think uh, you know, you, at some point you've got to understand uh, that elections do have consequences. Certainly, the the municipal election has consequences, but so did the provincial election, and um, we've got two ships passing in the night here. Well, I'm not even sure they're passing. I mean, if there's one thing I think that, you know, we need to talk about here is the elephant in the room. Uh, you can talk about governments uh, and previous governments' commitments, and, and obviously that's a, a factor here. Yes, there's been a change of government, and we have to realize that, that a new government, no, that's six months old at this stage, uh, is not bound uh, by the, the, the commitments made by a previous government. No government is, I mean, no matter who was the premier at this stage. They don't need to do or are not committed to do what Kathleen Wynne promised. We understand that. However... Uh, he has said that he's committed to, you know, Hamilton's going to get the money. Uh, but at this stage, you have to wonder just where we are in that process and what's happening. And and to your point, let's not cons- forget the fact that partisanship plays an awful big role in what goes on here, whether it's a, a, a liberal premier and, and, you know, or conservative or whatever the case might be here. And they look at Hamilton right now and say, well, where's the representation? And, uh, you know, there's one conservative MPP in this area. Uh, a lot of NDPers, and I, I wonder if that's a factor here. Well, uh, it's it's hard to say, but uh, obviously, um, if if you're looking at a at a future election, uh, you 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 know the, you fish where the fish are, and if you're you know Mississauga, which has a large number of uh, conservative uh, MPPs, and then you look at a Hamilton that is perpetually uh, an NDP stronghold. Um, you know, you, I think I think the real question is not so much uh, punishing Hamilton for voting NDP, but the question is, uh, what have we got to gain or lose when we only have one member, uh, as opposed to a Mississauga or a Brampton where you have several members? Uh, you know, where where's the biggest uh, opportunity, I guess, politically? But uh, I I just think the the other problem here that that is uh, was alluded to in in Dreschel's article and it's something I've been working on as well is what is the final price tag going to be? Um, the there's no question that if the project comes in at more than a billion dollars and by the way that's a billion dollars I'm told there's a hard cap of a billion dollars and that includes what has been spent. So, you know, whatever number you want to pick as having been spent, uh, at some at one point it was uh, claimed that it was $105 million has already been spent. Um, my guess is that if it's realized that that's going to be deducted from the total, that you'll start seeing people estimating the, the amount that's actually been spent is much lower than that. But whether it's $65 million or $105 million, um, that means that you basically have something like 900000 to build the the route and 
and I'm not hearing anybody these days saying that they think it's going to come in under a billion dollars. Well, and if that hard cap's in place, I mean, let, let's talk about the consequences. And I, I, I guess everything that we're talking about here is leading to the, 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 I think, a feeling a lot of us have is that we're waiting for the other shoe to drop here. And are they going to make an announcement about this? Uh, I, I don't think they'd be so extreme to say, okay, you're not going to get your project. Uh, but if we're going to get the money, let's talk about that. And and city council to the, you know, the consternation I guess right now need to get some clarity from the province on this now. Uh, and and if that hard cap is in place and we're spending money, and of course we all know from other projects, John, the longer you delay, the the, the more the cost goes up. It was like that with the expressway. It's certainly going to be like that with this. Are, are we going to have to start having a discussion later this year? But well, here we go from McMaster to the Queenston traffic circle again because that's all we can afford. Well, and, and I don't think, frankly, the stalemate can be ended until they actually get a bid from the private sector. I, I think, really, that is where the logjam is right now, Bill, is how, how do you put a, a package in front of council for their approval if you don't have the final number of what it's going to cost? And uh, until those bids come in, and Metrolinx, as I say, uh, up, you know, as recently as two weeks ago, said they hadn't received a bid yet, what that tells me is that the private sector... You know, they, they're not swayed by uh, discussions about economic uplift or anything like that. They're, they're trying to figure out how they can pay off a billion dollars in 33 years and, and operate the thing, how they can generate that kind of cash flow. And if the numbers don't make sense, uh, you're not going to get any bids. Well, and right now, in the, I know we got to run. In the absence of any bids, uh, I'll, I'll turn that statement around. Do we assume that's because they don't think the number crunching is going to work for them? And then I guess nobody's answering that yet. Well, uh, that's exactly it, Bill. It's exactly that, that, that if the numbers don't make sense, if, if you can't see your way to uh, paying off the debt, um, why would you bid on a project like that? A lot of questions, not enough answers at this point. Uh, John, thanks as always. I really appreciate you jumping in here today on this one. My pleasure, Bill. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Listen, there's uh, some stuff going on here with uh, consultations with the, uh, the the Ford government at Queen's Park uh, that I want to bring to your attention. It has to do with education. Now, they've touched on a number of different things already, you know, to do with governance and how uh, municipalities are going to be governed. We've, we've gone over that on the program. But uh, there is a, a growing concern among some educators right now about what might be happening. Uh, the education minister said that uh, there are consultations going on, uh, yet no decisions made yet. But the, the, one of the focuses that the, they're looking here is uh, classroom size. Uh, now, the previous government had dealt with that. Uh, there seems to be a propensity right now for the Ford government to basically tear apart anything that uh, the Wynn government did over the last number of years. But uh, taking that cap off that's in place right now could have some consequences. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Don Danko, the uh, trustee for Ward 7 up on Hamilton Mountain for the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. Don, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. This is a, not a, a front-burner issue for a lot of people, classroom size. What's the big deal? Well, it is a big deal if you've got students in the system, and, and of course, you as a trustee. Uh, and, the, and the concern here is quality of education, I would think. Absolutely. Whenever we're making a decision, whether it's financial or programming, the first consideration we have is student learning and achievement. How do we get our students from wherever they're coming into our system um, and make them successful when they leave our system? Well, I get a little nervous anytime any government, I don't care what political stripe they are, uh, when they say our number one priority and the, the reason people elected us was to, to wrestle this financial situation to the ground. Uh, that seems to be this priority. Education, health care seems to be just line items on their budget for them. That, that's got to be a little concerning for you, too, I would think. 
It, it is, and I suppose part of the challenge that we have right now is the number of emerging messages where um, often they're hitting the media just as our staff are receiving them, and it's often not um, all of the information we might need to talk to our communities and, and get feedback. Uh, so we are trying to navigate all of these emerging messages as we receive them, and this one, for example, where we're talking about the potential to either eliminate or, or change class caps on kindergarten or other class sizes. Um, you know, as a board, we haven't had a chance to talk about that um, because that's just come out. Um, interestingly, from your perspective, and, and some of the reading I've done on this has said that the ministry is doing a consultation. The Minister of Education was at the Ontario Public School Board Association conference, uh, I believe it was yesterday, I, I'm heading there today, um, and did talk about the fact that the ministry is open to examining class sizes. And so we think this is the beginning of a much bigger process where all class sizes could be examined. And again, it's been years that we've been working on reducing class sizes, um, establishing what the right ratio or a good ratio in the classroom is. It, it feels like we might be taking a step backward. Well, and that's the concern I think a lot of people have. And, and look at, you know, if you're just a taxpayer, I don't care if you don't have kids in the education system right now, uh, quality of education and, and let's, you know, to use the colloquialism, bang for your tax dollar, is, is bang for your buck is, is got to be a consideration here right now. And you're right. I mean, this is kind of turning back the clock. And uh, when when governments say that they're going to have consultation, that's on the surface that sounds like a wonderful thing, Don. But when they say we're open to doing this, that, that oftentimes that's a trial balloon to say this is what we're going to do. We just want to give you a little bit of time to get used to it. That that is the concern, of course. And at this point, uh, if anyone is listening who's a parent, whether you're a parent of a kindergarten um, child or someone else in the system at a, at a higher grade level, because we don't know where this is going. And because I'm not familiar with the details of how you might participate in that consultation, we're just encouraging any parents, uh, any concerned community members, write the minister, uh, write, include us on that communication so that we can gauge uh, the voice of the community and make sure that we're advocating on behalf of the community as well. Maybe we should uh, step back just a little bit, Don, and if you could maybe just uh, briefly explain to our listeners about the, this cap that's in place right now. Uh, basically, as you mentioned, this is done after years of consultation, and they didn't get it right right off the bat. I mean, it's been a, a working, a moving target here uh, to try to make a determination of the, the st- basically it's a teacher-to-student ratio, right? That's right. So I guess to give some context, um, the current ratio that we have at HWDSB is in kindergarten is around 13 to 15 um, students for one staff member. So we do, we have a class cap for kindergarten of 29 students. It used to be that some classes would be considerably higher. That's now a hard cap in our system. And of course, there are financial costs associated with that in terms of staffing. Um, I want people to think though, Full day kindergarten came in not that long ago. My my kids are what now? My gosh, I can't even think of their age. <laughs> my daughter's my daughter's twelve. She was not in full day kindergarten. It was in the process of being rolled out, and our school didn't have it back when she was in kindergarten. So it's not it's not that old um, a program. But the reason we brought in full day kindergarten is because we know that if we can bridge. Um, any gaps in learning for preschoolers between kindergarten and grade one, we can actually improve their achievement. We can help sort of level the playing field. And in Hamilton, we have the second highest poverty rate in the province. That means one in five students in the lower city are living in poverty. And those students are coming in with some deficits um, in their learning. And that's just the nature of where they're coming from. So also think about before we had full-day kindergarten, um, students might just be in daycare. And the ratio for 
uh, student to staff in daycare is eight to one. So you have a three-year-old in daycare. They have one teacher or one daycare provider for eight students. And they become three and a half, maybe in September, they're turning four before the end of the year. All of a sudden, they go to a 15 to one ratio. And we've always wondered what is the best ratio, but we have to work within the, the financial structure that the ministry provides. So you can imagine there are already challenges when you put that many little people at different levels of ability to care for themselves, different um, academic abilities in terms of, you know, what vocabulary are they coming in with? And then you, you have two staff members usually in a class of about 29 or 30. Uh, and and I think you and I had this broader discussion, but I mean, I think it's very germane to, to what you've just described here, is because uh, even when the full-day kindergarten was brought into place, I mean, the critics of that time, as you recall, were simply saying, oh, this is just daycare. That, you know, this, we're paying for this with our tax dollars for daycare. It's not. It's addressing a shortfall that we had in our education system. When you compare some of the data of Canadian students to place, other places in the world, we're, we're falling back in, in many areas. And, and this was an attempt, as, as was explained by the government, to try to catch up and to try to give students a step up and, and to, to try to get them into a better frame of mind to, to, to be competitive, obviously, with our education system. But now all of a sudden, as they say, that you've got a government that seems to be saying, well, we don't really need those caps right now. Uh, we've seen what happens when you have, I don't even know if it's going to be unlimited, but I, I can recall the days when, you know, there'd be one teacher and 35, 40, sometimes more than 40 students in one class. And you got to wonder what kind of an education, what kind of quality of education those students are going to get. And that is a major challenge when we also know that if we can do uh, differentiated teaching and, and figure out where is each student in their learning and how do we manipulate or adjust our teaching um, and learning activities for that particular student, how do you do that when you have large class sizes? So even looking at our primary class sizes, right now the cap is uh, for grade one to three is 20 students. And so, again, the concern is the more students you have in a class and the, the larger the student-to-teacher ratio the more challenging it is to meet each student where they are and to address their needs. And that doesn't even address the issue of uh, what kind of supports do we have for our students with special needs that are integrated into the classroom. Um, I'm sure you've had discussions before about how many EAs do we need in the system? Um, what kind of supports do we need to help students who have additional exceptionalities or special needs? Um, so you, you put all of that together and you increase class sizes and, and we have some legitimate concerns about how our students are going to manage and how they're going to achieve. Okay, but if I take the minister's words at face value, uh, Minister Thompson about this, uh, where they, they're they just, this is consultation, they haven't made any decisions, but she did go on to say that uh, with this discussion about class sizes uh, is going to allow school boards to, what she says, deliver better value for government investment, uh, noting that education, staffing costs make up about 80% of the government's fund towards school boards. That statistics are really a red herring, though, Don. I mean, you know, there was labor costs, uh, salaries and benefits, wages and benefits, is 80% of just about any business's, uh, you know, cost. I mean, it's, that's what it comes down to. and It looks as if that's what they're targeting. They want to reduce that number. And that, that doesn't sound like good news for any school board. Well, that, that's right. And, and, you know, staffing costs are a huge part of our budget, but... Talking about quality but reducing staffing, because that's what that suggests to me, um, those, those two don't go hand in hand. <laughs> no. So if we're talking about quality of education or quality for dollar, um, just reducing the number of adults in a room with, with kindergartners or other students, to me, does not, does not address those two things. Um, I can see from a financial standpoint, um, when we have a hard cap and we're required to make sure every classroom um, is below or at that cap, 
then sometimes it does mean we have to open up a brand new kindergarten classroom when we're one student over that cap. So I can understand where they're maybe looking at a hard cap versus um, a, more of a guideline or a soft cap on classrooms and, and potentially having some maneuverability there for, for school boards to budget and to figure out um, class sizes. But right now we really have the same information that you have. So we have limited information and we don't have all the answers. Some of the questions that we have going forward um, are looking at how will this impact student achievement? How will it impact um, staffing? What does it mean for facilities? So when full day kindergarten rolled out, we received funding uh, as each school rolled out, they looked at the classroom facilities and we did renovations for full day kindergarten classrooms to make sure they were the right size because class sizes were larger than our standard classroom. So if they're going to increase class sizes, what does that mean? Do we get money for renovations going forward? Um, how do we manage that? Because again, a lot of bodies in a room, you need to have the right space. Well, I wouldn't hold my breath waiting for the money. Uh, I mean, <laughs> this has been a pretty rough time for, for boards of education. I'm sure you guys have discussed this around the table. Uh, that money for renovations that was supposed to come from the cap-and-trade revenue has been canceled, so you, you're scrambling to try to find money for that. Now you've got a, an education minister that's saying that the number one priority of this government, meaning the Ford government, is to cut what they call a $14.5 billion deficit. Uh, by the way, even the uh, you know the other folks that are looking at the financial numbers say that's actually an inflated number, but that's the number they're running with to try to justify what they're doing. And Minister Thompson said at that conference you're talking about, Don, that look at that the the healthcare system and the education system are going to have to take a hit. That, that's sorry, that's not going to be there. So clearly, those are not priorities for them. Reducing the deficit is that's a rather ominous tone, isn't it? It is, and, and as I, I mentioned, the minister did say we're examining class sizes. So while this initial, and I'll, I'll say consultation because you've said it, but I really haven't heard the details about how we're, they're doing a consultation. I'm hoping that happens. Um, that yeah, but, you know, Don, to your point, though, they said they were going to do a consultation about uh, tuition fees, too, and they made that announcement yeah. a few days ago, and I talked to yeah. student associations, I talked to the university associations, and I talked to professors. None of them were consulted, so I don't know who they were talking to. Well, and, and that, that is a challenge, and, and so in the absence of a structured consultation that we have information about, again, I'm going to encourage parents are, are the people that may be able to influence the government's decision-making. Yeah. Um, they are voters. So please, if you're able to, um, write to the minister, let them know what you're thinking, but include school boards, uh, your, whatever your local school, school board is, on that communication so that we know what you're thinking and what's being sent to the ministry. And ultimately, hopefully, we can come to some kind of compromise that, that is workable, um, but that holds the government accountable to what the voice of the, the, the community is as well. And we've seen that happen. I mean, uh, to their credit, I mean, let's, you know, let's check off the boxes when they do something right. Uh, they backed off that promise about the Greenbelt a couple of days ago, and they said it was because of the pushback they got from the public and from different elected officials. So, they, you know, your point's well taken. I mean, uh, whatever government you're talking about here right now, they will respond. If there's a groundswell of, of support for something or a groundswell of opposition to it, uh, they'll pay attention. And, and uh, I guess what we need to do, maybe the message we need to get across is, that, look, at don't wait for this to happen. Uh, be proactive, not reactive. And uh, that way the government can take that into consideration when they're going to make policy changes. Exactly. And, you know, as a school board, as I mentioned before, we haven't even had the chance to discuss this as a board. Uh, the chair my, and, and myself, I'm the vice chair. 
we, we've discussed it when it emerged, um, just because we anticipated some questions from the media. But um, until we've had a chance to sit down and talk about it as a board and have a stance from our, our board perspective, um, you know, it, it creates challenges when, when announcements come out like this. Well, because you've got some challenges yourself. We'd already talked about the, dis- the deficit you're going to have to be dealing with now to, uh, to do with school repairs uh, and that kind of infrastructure. Now you've got this uh, cloud that's looming on the horizon. We don't even know exactly what it is going to entail from the, you know, the government's going to do this. And my understanding is uh, there's some teacher contracts that are coming up later on this year, too, that are going to expire. Uh, and that's not necessarily something you can do a whole lot about at a board level, but you're certainly going to have to take the fallout for it if there's a confrontation again. And it kind of looks like we may be heading for that. Um, and, yes, we have central centralized negotiation with the province, um, with our teachers and, and staff unions. And so um, that hopefully will unfold in a way that is productive. Um, we're certainly hoping for that. But we do have to deal with whatever the outcome of that negotiations, uh, negotiation is. And, and that can have impact on, on how our system runs, on how we meet the needs of students. Um, that's something we just need to keep looking uh, for more information and managing it as it comes. How does the local board uh, respond to this? And, and I, your point's well taken here, Don. That look, at, you know, you, you don't really know right now. You know that there's going to be consultation. Uh, as, as you meet as a board over the next little while, uh, uh, do, 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 you, do you put something together? Do you try to at least work on the beginnings of a presentation or to, a submission to something to the minister, uh, even if they don't ask for it? I mean, I, you certainly want to have a voice in this, I would think. Certainly whenever we have concerns about um, things that are either happening in the community that the ministry may have some sway over or something like a ministry decision that's coming, um, we can send information to the ministry, usually in the form of a a letter. We often would include other school boards on that statement if we we have a position that we'd like to take and make sure that we uh, allow other school boards to understand where we stand on the issue. And and we can also work through our public school board association to advocate um, on behalf of the public, on behalf of the public interest, to the ministry. Uh, because, and again, we, you know, we're speculating to a certain extent here, uh, but, I mean, we're into January right now, and if they've decided that they want to have this discussion or at least, you know, make a policy change or decision of some kind in this, uh, I would think that they're targeting next September. So th- this is going to re- unfold pretty quickly, I would think. That's likely, and we're in the middle of our, our budget process. We've just initiated that this month, and so we're going to have to follow what the ministry is doing and, and anticipate what they might be doing um, as we, we um, plan out our budget for the next year. And, of course, we always need to have um, contingencies if changes happen through the year. We're seeing cuts to programming that, that was funded for this current year, and now those, those, that funding is reduced. So we, we need to be able to adjust it as our mandate. We must, or we're legislated, sorry, to have a balanced budget. So whatever planning we do, we have to be mindful of the potential decisions that the ministry will make that will impact that, that budget. And it's, this is not a singular issue. I mean, you can't look at this as a standalone, can you? Because, I mean, if they're going to do something about class size, as you've already mentioned, uh, that's going to have something to do with teachers, probably teachers' contracts, certainly. Education assistance, uh, funding for that, too. EAs, are there going to be more of them available? I mean, the, a lot of questions, not enough answers right now. And that's right. And then right now we're, we're sort of looking for more information from the ministry so that we can start to better understand where they might be going with this. Um, it could be a small change. It could be a large change. We don't know at this point. Um, but again, it is so important that we bring a stance uh, statement forward from our board that parents, community members engage in this and, and let the ministry know and your boards know 
where, where, what you think about it. Good luck That's with this. That's the only way we can uh, help navigate this. Well, fingers crossed. Good luck with this as this unfolds over the next little while. Don Danko, the Ward 7 trustee and, of course, vice chair of the Hamilton Board of Education. Appreciate the time today, Don. Thanks so much, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.